Welcome to the Filmed Live Musicals Podcast, a podcast about stage musicals that have been legally filmed and publicly distributed. The Filmed Live Musicals website contains information on nearly 200 musicals that have been captured live. Check it out at filmedlivemusicals.com. And now, on with the show. It is a truth universally acknowledged that the secret to happiness is to seek our liberty, to follow the dreams of your heart. My guest this week is Paul Gordon, an award-winning composer with over a dozen musicals to his name, including the Tony-nominated Broadway musical Jane Eyre, Emma, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Daddy Longlegs, and most recently, Estella Scrooge. His work has been performed all over the world and translated into multiple languages, including Korean, Japanese, and Spanish. In 2015, Daddy Longlegs was the first off-Broadway musical to be live-streamed. And the success of the stream led Paul to create Streaming Musicals, a site dedicated to bringing stage musicals to the screen. Welcome, Paul. Happy to be here. When did you first fall in love with musical theater? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I first fell in love with musical theater when I was in the fifth grade. And we were taken to my future junior high school where they did an eighth grade production of Bye Bye Birdie. And I was, my fifth grade mind was just blown away. I just couldn't believe like people could get up on stage and sing and act and tell a story. My parents had played Broadway musicals in the background, West Side Story, South Pacific and My Fair Lady. And I'd really loved the scores. And I'd probably seen some of those movies, but I was not prepared for live musical theater by eighth graders. And for a long time, I felt that eighth graders were the best actors and singers in the world. But truly, <laughs> that was the moment that I became so excited about the art form. And then later, later in life, I saw a production of Godspell at the Mark Taper Forum that I went, this is just incredible. And then the first musical I ever saw on Broadway was Sweeney Todd. So I, I would say those three events really... Uh, catapulted my interest in in musical theater. And you started out as a songwriter rather than a composer or a musical theater composer? Yeah, no, I had I had a 20-year career writing pop songs. I was in bands. I was trying to get record deals. I, I, I felt like in my 20s, I just really wanted to be Elvis Costello. That was <laughs> really my goal, though I was writing musicals at the time. I, I had a rock musical that I, that I wrote with my writing partner, Jay Gruska, that Katie Seagal was in, Pamela Adlon was in. Um, it was sort of a Rent-like musical that took place in Venice Beach. And in fact, I'm still working on it. I still feel like this musical <laughs> will, will deserves its time of day at some point. But yeah, I was always interested in musicals, but I did, my career was music, was pop songwriting. How do you think that has informed writing pop music, has informed writing musical theater? Well, I think it's helped me a lot in that, you know, especially since musicals now tend to be more contemporary than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago, since that's really, those are my roots. My roots are in pop music. So everything that I do, including, you know, my more classical shows, I still feel is, is rooted in my pop musical sensibility in terms of verse, chorus, hook, bridge, and, and sort of what I was taught in pop music, then that was expanded upon when I discovered Stephen Sondheim. And, and then that's when my writing shifted to 
oh, this is how you write musical theater as opposed to pop songs. And for me, the best pop songs are the ones that do tell stories and that... Uh, and that's what I love about, obviously, what I love about musical theater is that we're we're just telling stories through song. That's that's right. And and that's interesting because I think after a while, you know, the, the stories that I was telling in pop music were personal. The, the artists mm-hmm. that I loved listening to, Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell, Laura Nero, um, some of those artists, the, their work was so personal. It was about them. So that was my influence as well. So my pop songs, I was mostly writing about myself. So after a while, what can I say? I got bored with myself. How many (laughs) breakups could I write about? Like I fell in love. I fell out in love. My heart got broken. My heart didn't get broken. I mean, those were the stories that I was writing. And after a while, like I sort of, you know, I sort of had it down and I don't, I didn't really have anything more to say. Mm -hmm. So the moment for me where all of that changed was when I picked up the novel of Jane Eyre and decided to, to make a musical of it. And suddenly I had this enormous wealth of, of material in which to, to connect to that was no longer about myself. It was about, it was an entirely different story from a completely different narrative from an author who is a genius and whose words were magical. And suddenly I was thinking, I can make these lyrics. This I could tell this story instead of my last breakup. And that was a revelation. And, and I did. And I never had as much fun as I did writing Jane Eyre. So a lot of your musicals are based on books and particularly books by women, which I love. What is it about all of these stories, uh, the Jane Austen's and Jean Webster and uh, Charlotte Bronte that, that you connect with? Well, um, a couple of different things. I mean, first of all, as a writer, I'm, I'm interested in stories that last the test of time. You know, stories that last 100 or 200 years, you know that when you work on that story, and, and in musical theater, you know, the process often takes 10 years. So you're with that story for a long time. So you have to have a connection to that story. I've always been drawn to strong women in life and in stories. Strong women are my friends. And, and when, I, when I am attracted to, to stories, it's usually about strong women. And I just find their stories more interesting. And we've written so much about men that I just didn't think, you know, and I have a few musicals that feature men. That's fine. But, but I'm, I'm really drawn to these characters. I mean, I was drawn to the character of Jane you know, I, I remember reading it, reading the novel for the first time. And on page 10, I was in tears with her story and her journey and how she overcame the obstacles against women in, in the culture where she grew up with. And, and of course, I was enamored by the love story. I, most of my work, I like to leave the audience. I want the audience to leave the theater or the stream feeling better about life than when they when they went in. You know, and, and we all we all admire stories that are brilliant that that aren't uplifting that and, and those stories are necessary. And I have a few, but mostly I'm drawn to stories that make us feel uplifted. And of course, in Jane Eyre, there's a lot of ups and downs in that story. And it's really only the end that we get rewarded. But um, but I you know, I was I was very drawn to Charlotte Bronte's prose specifically 
as a writer and a lyricist, I just found her words incredibly creative, inspiring, enough for me to write, you know, an entire musical that I worked on, that I'm still working on. But we worked, <laughs> we worked on that for 10 years, the journey from first note written to Broadway opening. It's so incredible, like the idea that a musical is never finished. <laughs> It never is. I mean, that even all these years later, it's still percolating in your mind. Well, well, um, John Carrot and I have have written another version of Jane Eyre that we're going to publish with Musical Theater International, who publishes mm-hmm. the original version. That is just that 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 more people will be able to perform. That's simpler. That we're calling the chamber version. You know, in a sense, the Broadway production was a lot of that was about the Broadway production. It wasn't really about being able to make the show better when we were in previews, because in that particular situation, we had a new set. And a lot of our preview was about the design and not about the actual uh, dramaturgical elements of the show, which I was more interested in, which since post-Broadway, we've had the opportunity to work on that more. And we're very excited about the new version we're going to release to the world early next year. Oh, that's very exciting. Will that be something that is perhaps shared on streaming musicals? We definitely are in talks about doing a filmed version of Jane Eyre, and I hope that happens in 2021. Oh, me too. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to switch over to Daddy Longlegs, and I loved when you were talking about having people leaving the theater or the stream feeling better. And my personal story with Daddy Longlegs is that uh, in 2014, I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, and I spent a year of over a year recovering, and I couldn't go to the theater because my immune system was compromised. And Daddy Longlegs, the stream happened in December 2015, and I was like, "Uh, if I can't go to Broadway, I'm going to Broadway's going to come to me. And it was so thrilling to watch this beautiful show with this gorgeous character, Jerusha, who, you know, loves to read and wants to learn and like everything that I love. And I was able to watch this beautiful show from my living room. Well, that's, I mean, that's really amazing. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but I'm glad that, that Daddy Longlegs could be there to cheer you up. I mean, I have to say that, first of all, I loved the experience of working on Daddy Longlegs and creating it. Also, quite a long journey to get it from page to stage. And there were so many different people involved in in the evolution of that show. But I have to say, the moment where I came home from the theater, I was having some health issues of my own around the time that that we streamed it. And I remember walking to the theater. We, we lived actually walking distance to the theater at the time. Uh, my wife and I lived midtown, but it was a very slow walk with what I was going through. And, but I wanted to be there when the cameras were there, mainly for support. I, I didn't even think much of the idea. It was Ken Davenport, our producer that went, Hey, let's stream it. And I went, all right, maybe that will help ticket sales. And when I was at the theater, there were these two gentlemen from live stream that had never seen the show. One was on one side, one was on the other side. The show started and I sort of forgot about them. The show went on, it was the show that I'd seen a million times. And when you write a show, there comes a point where you just can't see the show anymore. You're just done. You just, like it just washes over you and you just can't even sit there. But I struggled through it. 
just so to, to support it. So Stephanie and I get home and um, that was the New York live feed. And then the next feed was the LA feed followed by the, the London feed, the Japanese feed, whatever order it was. Um, so I believe we were watching the LA feed when we got home. And I said, let's just watch five minutes of it just so that we're not embarrassed. Like those guys were just there. They'd never seen the show. I don't know what this looks or sounds like. So I'm sitting kind of on the arm of the couch while Steph has the computer open watching the show. And I'm watching it for like 30 seconds and I'm going, hey, this looks pretty good. And then another 30 seconds goes by and I go, this sounds pretty good. I watched the entire show. Like I just said, move over. And I just sat there and I watched the entire show and it completely dawned on me that there is a new untapped world for theater that can change our industry, help our industry, make our industry more fair, make it more available to more people. When I heard, and this was later, when I heard that that 150,000 people from around the world, from 62 countries had streamed the musical for free and branded the musical worldwide, I went, oh my God, this is what we've always needed and this is how we do it. And what shocked me more than anything is that nobody else really, other than my two partners at Streaming Musicals, um, Tom Pollum and Stacia Fernandez, nobody else got it. Like everybody else was, duh, 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 duh. let's just go back to what we were doing it before with crazy insane contracts, with no way for actors or musicians to make money beyond the regional production they're doing, or maybe a Broadway run that lasts however long it lasts, then they need more work. I thought, well, this is a way that we can sort of rethink the actual financial structure of theater that isn't fair and hasn't been fair for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can honestly say that it's only now during the pandemic that people are starting to go, oh, yeah, this is a good idea and we can do this. They're sort of going into it in, in all kinds of crazy ways and we can only show the, these many performances and charge this much. I mean, it needs to be much freer and it will eventually in whatever you know sort of ways that we have to go through growing pains to finally get to a place where yeah, let's just do this in a fair way where actors and musicians and designers and directors are paid in perpetuity forever, like film and TV actors, and that you can create a theater piece and either film it in the theater that you've staged and share it with the entire world, or just create a theatrical production outside of a theater without an audience that you film more like a, that you shoot more like a film, but it's still a musical in the traditional sense. Like I know we'll get to Estella, but Estella isn't exactly a movie musical and it's not exactly a film stage show. And I think some of my shows like no one called ahead and Emma, you know, they're not the live stage show, but they're very similar to what the stage show would be, but it is a different experience. We call it a soundstage musical, but you can call it anything you want. We're just in a new age where it's really important. And you know, this, there are all these little gems of, of musical theater or theater shows all around the country, or at least there were before February. And, and, and they would play for three weeks and then they would go away forever. I've written a couple of those shows. I have friends that have written those shows or have been an actor in those shows or have directed those shows. And they're worthy of being seen forever. A lot more than a lot of things that are on Netflix that we'll watch. 
<laughs> you know? So I just think there is a world, hopefully in the next few years, that we all create together that honors and captures the musical theater gems from around the world, like Daddy Longlegs, a show that you never would have had any way of ever seeing had we not decided to do this marketing trick to try to get more people to see the show. And you know what? We got a few more people to see the show, but ultimately the big revelation was, guess what? We can stream musicals and we can, you know, we can change our industry. It's amazing how the pandemic has suddenly, I put inverted covers, shifted the industry into, oh, this filming theater is a good thing. I'm curious what your view of filming theater was before the stream of Daddy Longlegs. I had no thought of it, really. I did I did have one idea. You know, I, I grew up in L.A. And I didn't move to New York till five years ago because I always thought that I could be on both coasts. But then I realized, no, I really had to be in New York. But before that, I just kept thinking, is, is Broadway in the West End our only goal? Is that all we can do? It, it, if I'm literally writing now for musical theater, is the only way that I can really make a living through having my shows get to Broadway? And if I don't get to Broadway, there's really no other way I can support myself. And listen, I even got to Broadway and that didn't help me support myself. You know, so so I had this idea, like I didn't know anybody at HBO. And I thought, what if HBO did a season of just musicals and just did Light in the Piazza, did a little night music, did one, did Emma, did, and you know, I, I had a whole, I had 10 show season and they could just film them all for a million dollars and they'd all look sort of the same and they wouldn't have to be $15 million. But I didn't know anybody at HBO. I didn't know anybody anywhere. You know, I had no connection. It was just an idea in my head, but I did have the thought of filming musicals and, and, and just trying to create a different market, a different way for audiences to share in the, in, in, in the experience that didn't live in New York or didn't live in the area where your regional theater was. And that's what I think is so important about filming musicals. The, the work that you're trying to do, because Broadway HD was already established at this point when, because Daddy Longlegs went on to Broadway HD. right. right. How is so like let's dive into streaming musicals a little sure. bit. How how is streaming musicals different to Broadway HD? In a very, very specific way. First of all, I love the people at Broadway HD. We work with them, we always talk with them about our, our, our new shows. Um, and of course they they were very early in the forefront of this. But they are a subscription service, as is Spotify, as is Apple Music, as is Amazon Prime. And, and the effect that that has on royalty holders like myself is that it just, just I guess the simple version is it makes it much more challenging for artists to make money and to have to make a living through, through the stream. It, it's still a very producer-centric medium, um, all of the streaming markets and networks. And we're more interested in the pay-per-view aspect of streaming, which those dollars go directly into the pocket of the actors, the artists, the writers, the designers, investors, and producers, everybody. But it's divided in a more equal way. And we're still working on that. That's still a work in progress. And of course, the union, SAG, and AFTRA, and, and everybody, they have their own ideas of what's fair. And actually, even today, they've, or today and yesterday, they've come up with some kind of new agreement that I haven't really looked at yet. But the idea is, 
is that a lot of these contracts that were written in the 1950s and the 60s, they don't apply to 21st century digital technology. And they don't apply to what we are able to do in musical theater and streaming now. And while this new deal may push us in the right direction, I still think we have a tremendous amount of work to do in the future to make it totally fair, to make it, you know, there are things like, you know, we did a, a, a CD of Pride and Prejudice. I mean, sorry, we, we did a stream of Pride and Prejudice, but we didn't do a CD because we can't afford it, you know, because of the union costs and the contracts that exist. We just don't have the money. So, uh, we, and, and that's always been the case throughout my career is I haven't had the finances to release a CD of Emma, to release a CD of the shows that I'm doing because of the restrictions that, that unions have on costs and the fact that I wrote a, a show that was a hit in a regional market. You know, we just don't have the money to pay people for the costs required for the unions to release those recordings. And Daddy Long Legs, it was an interesting case because I don't think we would have ever, I don't think Daddy Long Legs would have had a life after the Rubicon had we not done a CD. And I had budgeted a CD, not knowing yet the restrictions that were in place. And of course, my pop music career, I'd recorded lots of stuff. I'd produced lots of stuff. That was my wheelhouse. So I went, okay, here's the recording session for Daddy Long Legs. And here's the budget. And everybody gets paid a fair amount. And everybody will love to have this recording forever. And we're all ready to go. But a according to the powers that be, I had budgeted this sixty to $70,000 under what it needed to be. Wow. So it was like, okay, we can't do this now. It's just like just the same situation I faced with Emma, can't move forward. And we had a, an angel board member at the last second come in and give us the money. And from that CD, the show grew and people knew the show. And we ended up having productions in many places and eventually going to Off-Broadway and then event eventually capturing the show. So now it's, you know, it plays worldwide. And now the show I would consider a success. But that never would have happened had we not been able to record that CD. So there is that barrier still that I feel, but I feel like, you know, in the future, we're just going to have to keep working it out and pushing forward and making the artists that the unions are trying to protect, we need to really protect them. And we really need to give them what, what it's worth and pay them in per perpetuity. One of the things we've done with Pride and Prejudice that no show has ever done, to my knowledge, is we have cut the actors and the musicians in on the licensing royalty moving forward. So mm -hmm. actors and musicians will get a lifetime royalty, not only from the stream, which that's probably pretty low because of streaming models right now. And the fact that we are on Amazon Prime, which is a, um, a subscription network. So, mm -hmm. so we're getting paid and there's money there, but it's limited. But I do think that if, you know, when things come back after the pandemic, I do think Pride and Prejudice will have a good life in licensing. And my hope is that our actors and musicians you know, get a check in their mailbox, you know, every quarter, every, every half year, whatever, whatever the payout is that it's not going to make them millionaires, but is meaningful and will help them. And, 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 and enough of those checks will make it so artists can more easily afford to be artists and do what they do for a living. Oh, that's music to my ears. <laughs> Mine too. Yeah. I'm curious if daddy long legs, if you think did, 
is, you you think that the recording more than the the stream helped it around the world? I think they helped were its visibility. I think that the the CD made it possible that other regional f- theaters would ever do the show, um, and that enough people saw enough regional productions. And we had enough buzz that we were able to do a workshop in New York um, for investors under Ken Davenport and Michael Jackowitz. And then people went, let's do it off Broadway. And, and it was sort of put in John Carrot in my court to do you want to give up, you know, more of your percentage of your future licensing fee to go off Broadway. And my philosophy is always holding on to 100 percent of nothing is not as good as giving away a piece of something that will eventually, you know, create revenue streams. So, so I do think for sure that the stream of Daddy Longlegs made it much more successful in terms of the eyes of the world and playing on Broadway HD gave more people the opportunity to see it. I actually believe that if we could add Daddy Longlegs to say Amazon Prime right now, instead of exclusively on Broadway HD, we could do a lot more with it. You know, Broadway HD was, you know, that w- that was in the very beginning of streaming when I didn't even know it was going on yet. So we made kind of a, a longer deal with them. But in but but now the, the playing field is not so much exclusive. The idea is be on a lot of different platforms, be on streaming musicals. You know, there's new streaming platforms, as you know, springing up every day. And that's good. <laughs> You know, um, we're, it's sort of the wild west of streaming right now. Nobody's quite figured it out, but I think streaming musicals, our company, where I, 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 mean, I can only speak for us because that's the only thing I'm a part of. You know, we are about being innovative, finding new ways for artists to recoup. I mean, sort of investors to recoup and for artists to have more income streams. That's the goal. And for writers like me and my peers, it's a way for shows that have been sitting in a drawer for five to 10 years to suddenly be viewed by the entire world. And for me as a writer, I'm no longer waiting for artistic directors or Broadway producers to choose me to say, Paul, we're going to do your show in, in two years, which is sort of how it goes. Now I can go, hey, I, wanna, I have this new show. I feel like it's ready. I'm going to find an investor and then we're just going to stream it. Now, that's not necessarily easy finding an investor, but I will give you the parallel. It took me two years to raise the money to do Emma, to do the stream of Emma, because nobody knew what I was talking about. Even with Daddy Longlegs having streamed, <laughs> they were just like, what? What does that mean? How we make money? And I didn't even really know. I just knew that this was the right thing to do. And finally, I got enough people that believed in me scraped it together and streaming musicals produced it and we created Emma and it, and it turned out really well. And, and, and all of a sudden people started to, to, to see it. And what happened? We got a worldwide licensing deal with MTI and we had never had a presence in New York. So that told me everything that I needed to to know about the model. Investors were going to basically recoup in a, in a year or two on, 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 on licensing, which they would have had the pandemic not happened. And hopefully when the world changes again, they will. And, it'll, and, and it allowed me to raise the money for no one called ahead in one day instead of two years. Because wow. the investors, um, 
you know, they actually went to some of the filming of Emma. And once they were in the theater, but they saw Video Village and they saw how we do it, they went, oh, I understand now. I get what this is. And so I I believe that people are catching on to what it is. And I just want to say something that's super important is that, and you know this, streaming and filming of musicals is never meant to replace live musicals because live musicals are irreplaceable. And the experience of being in a theater and seeing a live show will never be duplicated or replaced. With that said, streaming and what we're doing and what a lot of other people doing is the very next best thing. And there is an incredible experience to be had by plugging in your AirPods and watching a, a well-filmed musical on your computer that is that is a great experience one can have that I've had from watching some Broadway HD shows, you know, watching She Loves Me and, and a few other of their shows. It's like, this is great. I love this. You know, I mean, no, it's not as great as being there, but I get the full sense of the show. I'm hearing the score. I'm seeing the actors and, and, and I've just had a great experience. And I just feel that that's important. It's important for people to know. And what it does for writers and authors and, 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 and directors and actors, it just allows your work to be shared with the entire world in a way you never could before. It just, it's just a complete game changer. And I like to say it makes theater more accessible, affordable, and sustainable. Those three things are really what filmed and streamed musicals does for our art form that it couldn't do before. Absolutely. This idea that people don't know what it is, I keep being baffled by it. It's what led me to create this whole website in the first place. Uh, When I was studying at Central, the filmed live production of Company was Mm. streamed in cinemas and I was in London and there was an interview with Ellen Crass. the Broadway producer and uh, she, there was this interview before the, before company where she said she couldn't get funding to film company because no one had heard of filming musicals. And for me, having grown up watching into the woods, the original Broadway on VHS all the way in Sydney, Australia was like, what, why haven't people, I yes, filmed musicals are a thing. So I built this website and the pandemic has suddenly again, inverted commas, shifting this idea, all that filmed theater is a thing, this fear that it is a replacement for live theater is very deeply entrenched. It's going to take, it's people are scared. It's going to sabotage ticket sales. People won't come to the theater. But my argument is, well, they said that when cast recordings became a thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Legally Blonde, they did the same thing for Legally Blonde. Nobody will go see the show. Of course, the show got a West End production because of MTV and, and the other analogy I use besides cast recordings in the 40s, which is an excellent analogy because it's absolutely true. They were afraid of cast recordings. And then look what happened. I do a baseball example. Um, I do the baseball example for the Yankees. When they decided to televise every Yankee game, I don't even remember what year this was now. Of course, everybody said, don't do that. It's crazy. Nobody will ever go to the games again. And what happened? The opposite happened. A new generation of kids went, ooh, cool, baseball. Um, I want to go. Take me to the game. It just made the brand more exciting. It's just fear. It's just people having fear in the industry. You know, um, the, the, the biggest tragedy for the music industry was the fear um, when MP3s became a thing 
And the music industry, instead of embracing the future, sued their own companies and what happened, sued their, sued their own customers. And what happened, Apple ended up taking over the music, music industry and royalty holders like myself, songwriters, um, lost huge revenues due to streaming, due, due to the new way that everything worked. And again, subscription services, whereas a consumer, I'm happy that I can think of any song in the world practically and be able to play it on my phone. But as a songwriter, you know, you get 7 million hits on a song and you don't really get anywhere near the equivalent of compensation for that. So that's the part that I worry about that concerns me that we are living in a world where everybody thinks everything is free. And the problem there is it's not free to make. And so, so that's the part that we're really still grappling with because even with your Netflix subscription and your Amazon subscription and your Spotify, Apple music, whatever your subscriptions are, you know, most people, we pay it by the month and we don't think about it. Then we want to watch a movie and listen to a song. So we think it's free or we've already said we're paying for those services. So when you have a new pay-per-view come out, that's not attached to those services um, or it's an extra cost, like you're hesitant to pay that $4.99, even though you're paying these monthly bills, but now you have to pay a little extra. So you might hesitate and you might not pay. So I'm also exploring this idea of, of giving away shows for free um, and, and, and trying to figure out how to do it that way. Like, you know, we did release PNP for free and, and we, we, we were able to get a lot of people to watch it like Daddy Long Legs, you know, and, and the offers sort of started to come and, and people from different parts of the world, China, were interested in developing the show. So, so there, there are ways to, to brand your show without necessarily having an obvious income stream immediately. But I'm sure you're thinking a lot about this, but I know that, that I am in streaming musicals and a lot of people we're just trying to think about what do we do in the 21st century? How do we make these musicals more uh, available, you know, accessible, sustainable? Yeah. How do you think this all ties in with bootlegs? You know, I'm not in the bootleg world, but what, what I would say, obviously, is there would be so much less of a need for bootlegs if you would just let people film things practically. Like we're filming things on iPhones in theaters because the unions won't let us. You know, there's so many restrictions. There's so many rules and regulations and hoops, you know, especially in, in, the, in the regional theater world where, you know, these theaters are just barely making it and trying to do, you know, they can't do new work that often because the music man is what's going to pull in money, not this new show that nobody's ever heard of. So the idea is to make it easier for them, not harder. So if, they, so if we all rallied together and did that, there would be very few bootleg bootleg recordings because you wouldn't need them. Yeah, that is certainly my hope. My dream is that one day that you could leave a Broadway show and in the same way that you could pick up the cast recording, you could pick up the video. I have to say, it's just insane that you can't do that. It makes no sense. It's just fear. It's just, you know, it's kind of like the world we live in. It's not any different. It's, it's those very few people protecting what they have. They're the winners. You know, this is sort of what Estella Scrooge is about. You know, everybody can't be a winner because then there would be, you know, then there would be no winners. It's just fear of losing that little piece of what you already have. 
but that's not the way it works. You, you, you wouldn't lose, you would gain, but they don't know that because they're too afraid to let it happen in my opinion. And the, the tiny research that the figures that are available, uh, Videos of shows don't hamper ticket sales. They increase them, even even if by a small amount. They they don't, but they certainly don't take them away. The, there's so few Broadway shows specifically that have been filmed during the run that it's there's just no data for it. No, so I no people can say, well, it's going to jeopardize ticket sales. the The point that I wanted to that came to my mind that I wanted to make earlier was that people always want the in person experience. Mm-hmm. Like when you were talking about music streaming, yes, that. The, that form of income from sales went away, but then uh, concerts it boomed. The the right. touring and because people want the live in person experience, and I think that, and I I know you support this. Filming theater only boosts people's interest and desire to be a part of theater, and they'll always want to go and see. Myself personally. I saw Daddy Longlegs on film. I'd seen it. Why do I need to see it again? I saw it twice more at the theater. 100%. I mean, what you're saying now is is so right on. And and here's why. I remember when in the early days of Les Mis that um, I went to see the show the first time. I didn't care for the show the first time, but I had a friend in it, so I had to go back. And then I really loved it the second time. And then I was just in that place, and this was before I knew John Carrad that I just couldn't get enough of the show. So they'd, there'd be these PBS concerts, you may remember, that were on, and I got excited. I'd watch that, and then the touring company would come back, and then I'd see the show again. And 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 anytime they'd show something on TV, it just perked my interest. When they showed Light in the Piazza on PBS, um, you know, I had, I had it on TiVo at that time. I think I watched it 10 or 11 times. I couldn't get enough of it. But what, what that, but what the overall thing that that does is it brands the show. It makes you aware of the show. You're not going to be interested or not interested in a show if you haven't heard about it or seen it. So filming a live capture of a Broadway show while it's, while it's running or any other show only helps you. There is no way that it hurts you unless the show is really bad and people go, this is bad. I don't want to see it. But sort of everybody likes something about some show even the shows that we may not care for. So it only helps. It doesn't hurt at all. There's there's actually no way that I can think of that it hurts other than the restrictions of filming and how expensive it is to film. Now, if you imagine just going into a sh- like our Pride and Prejudice, if we were just paying for the camera people to come in and the editing process, you know, our budget would have been practically, I mean, our budget would have been so easy and manageable and we would have gone into profit so quickly, but because of how much, you know, the risk, all of the financial restrictions that we, we had to deal with, like, you know, I had to ask for this money and now it's going to be a, a steep mountain to climb for people to eventually get paid back, which they will, because I have very, I have a lot of confidence the show is going to be licensed and, and it's going to do well. So but but why is it so hard? You know, that's what we have to ask ourselves. Why is this so challenging, so difficult? Why can't everybody see how this is in all of our best interest for the actors on stage? You know, like, no, don't pay them this extra huge amount that would make it impossible for us to film it at all. Just give them the royalties, you know, give them the income, give, 
Give them the, the payment and perpetuity that everybody else is getting. Let us all take the same risk. Let the producers take the same risk. Let the actors take the same risk. Like, it just makes sense. You know, if we win, we all win. If we lose, we, we all lose together and then we do the next one. But nobody loses because the show is there forever and your work is there forever, you know, which scares some people. And I understand it, but we are in a new world and we have to embrace it. I was just thinking about uh, films like The Sound of Music, which is a movie musical, but like was not critically acclaimed at first when it came out, but it kept being shown on television. It was released on VHS and over time it's accumulated this cult following and like Rocky Horror as well. Like so many things you could talk about that because they were spread out over different markets in different ways, they became, as you say, a brand, they became a known entity. And there is this resistance in, particularly in the United States, no, it has to stay ephemeral. It's like this idea, theater is ephemeral, so it must stay ephemeral. But we're losing, like we've already lost our, we're losing our history because we're not recording these performances. We're not recording actors. We're not recording design. We're not recording the shows as a whole. Whereas in the UK, the contracts are set uh, they're they're very different, and I know the scale of pay is very different. It's it's, it's a whole different ball game, yeah. yeah. but it's one central union rather than fifty thousand yeah. of them. Oh, and, but companies like NBC, who have very deep pockets, are literally jumping across the pond to film shows. They're filming uh, Elf with Matt Morrison. Yeah. Uh, it's cheaper to go to England and film there rather than use American like it's an American show based on an American movie like and I'm struggling with that and through the pandemic watching and it's it's not that the UK stuff isn't great it's wonderful but you know living in the US and as a US actor myself I you know I want the work here and I want the the work that's being created here to be seen in the same way that UK productions through the pandemic have been able to continue to to film shows with socially distanced audiences or without an audience and stream it. And yeah, that's just I not mean, happening stateside. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying is, is absolutely true. And, and we have considered filming in the UK for specifically those reasons. And it has been frustrating when you have all the unions split here and not um, operating under one umbrella because they have not been talking to each other. We got approval for one of our shows to stream, but then one union stood in the way and said, no, we don't agree after like, you know, a year of negotiation. So stuff like that is incredibly frustrating. And again, as we've said, it all needs to change. It all needs to shift. And, and I don't actually at this moment know how it does because of, you know, what I see lurking and looming, you know, which is, which makes me sad because it makes us, you know, less willing to work, you know, on, on certain union contacts, because as you know, you can work with non-union contracts, you know, and work with different people, but that's not what we want to do. We don't want to do that because, because of restrictions standing in our way, we want everybody to win, but of course our hands are tied. So in every project coming up, we have to go, is this a non-union contract? Is this a union contract? What's the best way we just did? I just filmed one of my shows called Being Earnest, 
which is um, based on the, the Oscar Wilde play. And we did it at Skylight Theater in Milwaukee with director Michael Unger, um, who used to be at the York. And so I had a relationship with him. And this was the first show that they, he was named artistic director of Skylight just last year. And being earnest was the first show he wanted to do. But with COVID and the pandemic, he was not allowed to do it. So he came to me and said, what if we did a remote version of it and streamed it? And I said, great. So their policy or their, the, the way they work, they work with non-union actors. So we had each actor do remote recording on an iPhone. We had, we, you know, we had a session. We, we did it like we would film anything. But they were like everybody was at home. And we had a tech come in and help them with their setup. And um, I'm actually very proud of how this turned out. We've worked really hard on it. And uh, I spent a lot of time editing the songs and I would love to share it at you, share it with you at some point soon. And I think we may release it in January. We, I have a meeting about the show later today. Um, but the point is, is that there were no restrictions on us and um, it wasn't terribly expensive to make. And the actors are all going to be in a, in a royalty pool moving forward. They don't even know this. And, and, and we're going to take care of them. And, and, and it just, and it just, we just don't have any restrictions. And it was just, and it was a very freeing way of doing it, you know? Um, and it was just their policy that this, this is the way we work. Um, so I, I do think there's, there's avenues of uh, ways to pursue things, but for me right now, and for companies like streaming musicals and all of us, you know, we're all just trying to figure out how do we do this so that it does not cost a fortune to do. I mean, you look at Broadway now, and you look at these $15 million shows and you think, how, how are you going to make money? Like everybody's going to lose. One show is going to do okay and maybe make their money back in a couple of years and everybody else is going to lose. You know, you're, you're in a world where you have six weeks to outperform your competition or you lose everything. And that's just an insane business model. And off-Broadway is worse. You know, when I'm trying to raise money, Originally, my idea was to, to raise money to do Emma off-Broadway and film an off-Broadway production. But I quickly realized, like I just, you know, going up to an investor, yeah, you can either give me your money or you can light it on fire because there's absolutely no different because there's just no way you're going to make your money back doing an off-Broadway show. And if you make your money back doing a Broadway show, you've just won the lottery. And as a composer, I started to feel like, so I have to win the lottery twice. I have to win the lottery once to get to Broadway, and then I have to win the lottery again to have a hit on Broadway. And that's just no way to have a career. So streaming and filming musicals gives us an entirely new path to, to be successful, not maybe to make to be this huge, wicked hit, multimillionaire Hamilton category. That happens, you know, when those shows come along and and, and we love those shows, and it's great that that happens. But what about everybody else? Mm -hmm. And how do we how do we make it so it's not just one person makes a gazillion dollars and everybody else fails? Like, how do we make it so that one person makes a gazillion dollars and everybody else finds their audience and, and has their success, just a different level of success where the where it works for the actors, it works for the musicians, it works for everybody. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I'm curious when you're talking about uh, like filming Emma, for example, the decision to film it without an audience, even 
why why do you choose to film it without an audience? I lo- I, I loved this particular idea because it because that was sort of the the idea the first idea I had was let's use the SAG low budget indie contact contract and um and and not have an audience so we wouldn't be under equity jurisdiction we'd be under SAG jurisdiction which at that time was much friendlier to what we were doing um and. <laughs> And I loved the idea of shooting it like a movie out of order, but shooting it on stage so that you're so that we were actually creating something new. It wasn't a movie and it wasn't a, a, a filmed live production. It was a soundstage musical where we would get to tweak the music in post and get to add things and get to, you know, for me, I let go of the musical part of it once we're in production and I hand it over to a music director and um, an orchestrator and I'm working on the book and the production in this, I could be part of post and I could as an author and a composer have much more say in the final product and how it looked, you know, working with the directors, working with our orchestrators, doing some of the orchestration myself, you know, in my pop music world, I made my own recordings and I got, you know, that was my wheelhouse and I've never gotten to use that part of my talent in musical theater because it's not the same thing. But in this, I can. This, I can go back to my recording studio and and start doing some of the things that I've always done in this form. And that's been really fun for me. But I think also it's just a different experience for the actors. Like like in a movie, you get to do the scene over and over. And, 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 and I was really attached to the idea of live singing in this form, which no films really do, which we did in Emma, No One Called Ahead. You know, it's it's that's not something that people think of. But I thought it was really, really an important element to have the live singing. And of course, you can, you know, help the live singing in post. And I like that idea, too. So we could really create the version that we wanted. And people were, of course, going, but you won't have the audience. You won't have that laugh and you won't have the applause. And I went to your point. Does Sound of Music have a laugh? Does Sound of Music have a, has a, have applause? No, it's it's a movie musical. So why would you expect something different in this? Aspect, you know, it's just that we're trained to expect something in a different form. And my idea was we'll train them to to expect something new. And and listen, this is just the first one. We'll figure out better ways of doing it as we go. And I feel like that's what we've done. Hmm. I noticed on streaming musicals that there is a tab for Japanese audiences. Yes. Can you talk about the relationship with Japan? Yeah. So, so, you know, John Caird and I, um, John, John has had a relationship with um, a company called Toho for a long time in Japan. And, um, you know, we did a production of Jane Eyre uh, years ago. And um, John is also married to a wonderful woman named Malko. And Malko uh, grew up in Japan, and she is the one that that read Daddy Longlegs as a child because the book was was very popular in Japan, even though it's not popular in the states or anywhere else that I know of. I'd never heard of it, and Malko was always very instrumental in connecting us to the Japanese market. So since we have done Jane Eyre, Daddy Longlegs, we did Knight's Tale there two years ago, a concert this year. We just got through with the production of Daddy Longlegs. So we have sort of an audience there that's interested in our material. So Malko and her daughter Yaya did the translation for Pride and Prejudice. Um, so we have a, we have Japanese subtitles 
for Pride and Prejudice. So that's what that tab is. Mm-hmm. Um, as I talked to John and Malco and Yaya yesterday on FaceTime, they are working on the Japanese translation right now for Jane Eyre for the new production we're going to do in Japan, I think in 2022 and for hopefully the stream and for um, Estella right now. They're doing the Japanese translation for Estella, which we, you know, we, we welcome our Japanese audience that, that have always been very kind to John and I. There's a wonderful history of musical American musical theater in Japan. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, no, late 70s, early 80s, uh, Japanese television networks paid for um, Pacific Overtures and then later Will Rogers' Follies and Victor Victoria to be filmed live and broadcast in Japan. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I yeah. So I, when I saw Japan on your site, I was like, Ooh, there's, there's more to this story. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're, you know, they, they are streaming daddy long legs. Cause I think we had to be at half capacity for our, for our production, but I have not seen that stream, but um, you know, I love working with, with these producers. They're so kind and, you know, they plan things years in advance, so you have to be very, very patient. Um, <laughs> well, they're streaming a Japanese version of Daddy Long Legs? They are streaming a Japanese version of Daddy Long Legs be- to make up for the sales that they lost due to being, you know, socially distanced. Oh. So I don't, I have not seen it, and I, I don't know exactly how it's working, but I know I signed something that said, yes, you can do this. So, oh, I'd love to find that because yeah, I watched the uh, the Spanish translation, Papi Piernas Largas, oh, which was beautiful. It was uh, filmed in Mexico City oh, by wow. Oak Live, and uh, they did it without an audience. It was an empty theater. But right. um, really, it was so interesting because obviously I know the English version so well. Uh, it was really fascinating to watch it in Spanish and see the kind of uh, Mexican flair that was put into it. Oh, that's awesome. Send me yeah. that link. I, I, oh, I will. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because MTI music theater international that, that licenses daddy long legs. Um, you know, they email us like a couple of times a week. Uh, is it okay if this company does it, you know, streams it without an audience and this day I'm like, yes, 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 do it. Let's do it. There were, I don't know if you were aware there was a, um, a Russian director who did, I don't know if you saw these, he was doing like, uh, like right at the start of the pandemic with his wife who played Jerusha and this other Russian actor, they were doing these sort of contemporary, um, like, like just these, these shoots on, on the songs, just the songs. And, and they would do them in a contemporary way and, 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 and edit in a way. And I think initially they were illegal, but we quickly like gave them permission and said, we love this. This is great. So that was really exciting to see it in Russian and this couple that just loved the show and they had this really unique way of filming it and they were getting hits. And I think they want to try to do a television production in Russia next year. But it's fun with this new world with people like, yes, film everything, like do it. I'm excited. I want to see it. You know, even if I just know you're doing it, it's exciting. It's exciting knowing that everybody can watch it because that's the idea, right? is to share it with people and have people enjoy it, especially in these turbulent times, you know, to have such a feel good piece like, you know, daddy long legs and Emma and pride and prejudice, things that, that are, that are, you know, uplifting, like, you know, I love heavy dramas and things that are challenging as well. But right now I want a little bit more of the lightweight. 
than I normally would. And I feel like we have that to offer right now. Mm, Very much so. Oh, this has been so wonderful. I could talk to you all day about filming musicals, but I I know we did not have all day. So I have a few quick questions to wrap us up. Uh, You don't need to think about these answers too deeply. Whatever comes to mind is good. There are no wrong answers. Okay. What is your favorite musical? A Little Night Music, followed pretty closely by Light Light in the Piazza. Do you have a favorite filmed live musical? Ooh. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to name my own. Um, I mean, I loved, I loved She Loves Me. I thought that was mm. filmed really, really well. I haven't seen a lot. I mean, the filmed version of Sweeney Todd that I sort of grew up to, you know. The, um, Angela Lansbury, George yeah, Aaron production. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that production and the Into the Woods that you mentioned. I mean, I love, I love those captures. And they did a capture of Light in the Piazza you know, that they only showed once, but I had it on TiVo. And that was a fantastic capture. And I wish I still had a version of it. I'd watch it every day. I th- it's really interesting, uh, the relationship between Sondheim and filmed life musicals, because I think he, like you, is like, just get it out there, put it, yeah, you know, no, put it I mean, on camera, let, let people see it. And I love that they had the audacity to release his shows because, you know, he's the master. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know we've talked about this a little bit with streaming musicals, that a filmed live musical is something between a film and theater. So yep. what should we call it? A soundstage musical. Uh, what do you wish had been filmed? Everything. Um, <laughs> but the, the interesting thing is most things have been filmed. They just, you know, they're the Lincoln Center archive and we're not allowed to see them. I mean, probably for me, the original production of West Side Story is is probably the show that I would like most like to see with contemporary filming of that production that was done in 1957 or whenever it was done. I mean, like that's the show, that's a life-changing show, certainly for, for theater. And yeah, I think I'd probably like to see that one. Mm. I would also like to see the original production of Little Night Music, the one that's the, that we have the original cast recording to. I saw the touring company 11 times in LA, <laughs> um, but I would, I would have loved to have seen the original production. Well, I think I know the answer to this, but what would you like to see filmed in the future? Everything. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have a list of 10 of my shows. I mean, really everything that comes out. Um, you know, I, I feel like every composer, you know, the, the, and writer, it's, it's just, they should have their due. They should, they should be able to have their work seen worldwide. Absolutely. Uh, Estella Scrooge is av- it's available now? Uh, I think we're a few days away from opening night. <laughs> For folks that don't know yet what Estella Scrooge is, can you give us a quick overview? Yeah. So Estella Scrooge is basically a Dickensian mashup. And we've taken the story from... Great Expectations, and merged it with A Christmas Carol and thrown in a little Nicholas Nickleby and every other Dickens novel. And it's contemporary. Our Scrooge is Estella Scrooge, and she's a Wall Street tycoon. And on Christmas Day, she decides to foreclose on the Hart House that's located in Pickwick, Ohio, run by Nick Nickel- run by Philip Nickleby, um, who's actually Pip from Great Expectations, and he runs a, um, a house for the disenfranchised. And so she travels to Pickwick and has her ghost experience 
while staying there. And there's lots of characters from other Dickens novels. It's really a lot of fun, but it's also sort of an important story for our time. And it, and it has a political message as well as an emotional message. And I feel quite good about that. So make sure to check that out on streamingmusicals.com. Yeah, and I think also Ticketmaster is releasing it. So it, you'll definitely see it on streamingmusicals.com. And where else can we find you online? paulgordonmusic.com is my mm-hmm. website. And yeah, and, and, and when you go to my website, I also hope you'll check out Kitty Bennett, which is this sort of new episodic idea I had. It's, it's, she's a character from, from Pride and Prejudice, but she's modern and, she, and, and she's a vlogger and she's a celebrity vlogger and she has you know four crazy sisters. But um, I'm doing it with uh, this wonderful actress named Juliet Gallia. And she plays Kitty Bennett, and um, I've it's a it's a it's a series musical. It's like a little musical. It's a form I'm sort of discovering as we go. We we have the first three episodes online, and they're all free. And we're doing the next three now, and then we have three more to do after that. And that's sort of going to be season one. And it's sort of a new foray into something that like we can sort of control it ourselves. It's like it's just her and I creating it and doing it, but it's a lot of fun. So if you have a chance, check it out on my website. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Paul. Thank you so much. This was fun. I'll come back anytime. Oh, wonderful. Filmed Live Musicals is a labor of love, and we'd like to thank everyone who makes it possible. Thank you to our patrons, Josh Brandon, Mercedes Esteban, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Al Monaco, David and Catherine Rabinowitz, and Beck Twist for your support. If you'd like to support Filmed Life Musicals, please like and review on your podcast app. Find us on Twitter at Musicals on Screen and on Facebook at Filmed Live Musicals. If you'd like to support the site financially, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash musicals on screen. No matter what level you're able to pledge, you'll receive early access to written content and early access to this very podcast. Visit www.filmedlivemusicals.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. 